You're listening to the Queensland Theatre Quality Time Podcast. Let me set the scene. The 2022 season is officially here. From classics with bite through to powerful new works that pack a punch, there's something to suit everyone. But out of the endless number of shows in the world, who decides which eight will make it into our season? Today, we're joined by our artistic director, Lee Lewis, our director of programming, Rod Ainsworth, our producer of new work, Shari Irwin, and our associate artist, Daniel Evans, to discuss how the 2022 season came to be. Enjoy. to the Queensland Theatre Quality Time podcast. I am your host, Lee Lewis, the Artistic Director here at Queensland Theatre. And I am joined by Rod and Shari and Hello. Dan, all of the people who are in the thick of the programming conversation because that's what this particular podcast is about, programming the 2022 season, what happened, the ins and outs of it. And uh, of course, we're having this conversation on the lands of the Yugger and the Turrbal people. For tens of thousands of years, stories have been told on these lands and it's a real privilege to think about laying down new stories on these lands next year in 22. And I'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and the ones to come for the work that they have done in ensuring that there is a continuous, in that phrase, world's oldest continuous culture. I'd like to think that we can contribute to that continuity in better ways than we have done in the past. So 2022, the magical land where we will emerge from the COVID chaos and if not return to a normal, return to a more manageable way of living with fewer borders, fewer shutdowns, maybe a little bit less mask wearing, uh, but definitely more theatre. I'm looking forward to more. I'm looking forward to all of the independent artists coming back online because it's safe for them to actually invest in their shows and make their unique works. Our job as a state theatre company is to be a, I suppose, a, a source of hope in society that we can put on shows next year, which is why we've done like this extravagant program next year, an extravagant program of eight plus one rescheduled from covid Robin Archer will be joining us somewhere in the year for the world premiere of her new play. And that'll fit somewhere in the year. Rod knows where because he figured out where it could go. (laughs) So Rod, Shari and Dan, the conversation, if someone says to you now, the 22 program, how did it start? What's the first thing that jumps into your head? (laughs) <laughs> I think of the amazing whiteboard in your office, actually. Uh, Lee has this this magic whiteboard that swivels and has one year on one side and the other year on the other. And um, yeah, constant scribbles and things, ideas up there. So that's what I think of when I think of planning the year ahead is what's what makes it to that whiteboard, how long stuff stays up there, what gets bumped down for whatever reason. It's kind of a visual thing for me of what what can, what can be fit on that plate in a way. The whiteboard of possibility. Yes. <laughs> plays that we can't forget, plays that haven't mm. found a place yet, plays that I would love to do and probably will never get to do, mm. plays that other people have suggested and I can't forget, plays that have two people in them because they're cheaper, yes. <laughs> <laughs> plays that would require a particular combination of people to happen, mm. actors to not forget. Mm. Maybe we could tempt them onto our stage. Yeah, everything goes on the whiteboard and then things get transferred to the next year mm. if they didn't make it onto this year because we have the... Well, the extraordinary privilege, but also the the burden of having to make a choice. Eight plays in a season. We kind of go, how many do we think we we should be doing? And eight seems to be a good number for our subscribers. I, I like the number eight. I don't know why we feel, I don't know, there's a sense of going, oh, is that enough? I, I think that is a good number myself. At a particular scale, yes. Yeah. I'd like to sneak in some little things mm. around that that could be littler, mm. that mm. might be like quarter works Mm -hmm. that could sit in the smaller space. I'm still trying to figure out how that Dion Salento space can work, Mm -hmm. how it can be useful for artists and whether we could do a work in that 90-seat space and make that financially viable. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's possible yet. I'm working on it. It's a Um, nice space. I think, yeah, I think that's something to look forward to. And it's also that, that lovely thing, isn't it? We've got the Bill Brown now 
working at full tilt mm. and audiences are liking this as their neighbourhood playhouse. They've liked mm. the plays this year. So what what do we do next year? Mm. Yeah. And it is ex- an exceptional theatre, isn't it, to yeah. be programming into. It's oh, beautiful. so lucky. Mm. Actors like acting in it. Audiences are liking seeing things in it. It's a fresh space so designers aren't going, oh, God, what am I going to do this time mm. in this in this space? They're excited. You put a floor in and people go, oh, we haven't had a floor in there before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's a flexibility and, a, and a, a possibility of dreaming new ideas in that space for artists, I think, which yeah. is exciting. Mm. We haven't found the limits of this space yet. Mm. We haven't flooded it yet. Ah, watch out season 2023. Yeah, well, it's it's funny. As soon as we've got this little book sitting in front of us and it's all printed and it's 2022, all of our work is about 23 now. I mean, yes, we've got the logistics of 2022. How does it happen? Yeah. Which also comes under the programming team's purview. But a lot of the far-reaching conversations are what are we doing in 23 and 24? But back to 22. Mm. What about you, Dan Evans? You've got to play inside the, the, the I know. season. Well, actually, it's funny. You say the whiteboard, but I kind of feel like I just remember coming into Lee's office one day and Lee just loaded me up with about what felt like 35 plays and then more, <laughs> more into my inbox to the point where I was just reading so much. And I feel like, and some you had been aware of, some plays you were absolutely, you, you'd kind of journeyed with them for quite a while. But it felt like, and I think what I'm seeing is a distillation of like that reading pile. And I kind of feel like the, this little brochure here feels a bit like a passport. So I feel like, or, or a ticket to a whole bunch of places because it, it really feels like the season that's been created is going to take us to a whole bunch of different kind of worlds or landscapes. And I think that's really exciting. And back in time, you know what I mean? Sideways in time. It's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm really keen. I think it's a it's going to be quite a journey for audiences next year. Yeah, and I don't know if that came out as a response to not being able to go anywhere. Yeah. So, and I, like I was drawn to stories that yeah. would take us away from here because sometimes yeah. you want to come back home, right? And that was a little bit of this year. Yeah. Like our town pulled towards the idea of here. Return to the Dirt yeah. is definitely here. Yeah. Voice Wallers Universe is definitely here. You know, so there was a lot of stuff pulling towards the local in this year and maybe next year. Like each year might be a response to the year before. Yeah. You know, and now where out. do we want to go? But yeah, mm. it is that that thing of a year looks like it's such a standalone thing, but it sits after a particular year before an ex. Yeah, so that sounds ridiculous, but I always think there is a much bigger story across the years of the company. Mm. Uh, and with only eight yeses mm. in a year, you can't say yes to everything. Mm. And you know that there are people that like different things and they're going to look at the year and kind of go, well, where's my musical? Mm. And I go, well, (laughs) Sunshine Club. Okay, that's there. But does that mean there won't be one in 23? Mm. How often can we do a musical? Because it's a huge resource choice. Mm. I think that goes the same for kind of the artists we feature in the season. You know, I remember a time at Queen's End Theatre, you know, inverted commas before Jimmy Barney, where we hadn't had Jimmy play on our stage yet. And it's this kind of after My Name is Jimmy premiered with us. That meant that from there on in, there is Queen's End Theatre with Jimmy and kind of what that gives us and the, the repeating joy of seeing him in different roles. Yeah, so I feel like it's also those, you can you can look at that time frame and go, oh yeah, I remember when we hadn't met that actor or that playwright and then, and I guess subscribers will, will see this and kind of follow it with more nuance. But I, I love that. I love being able to look back and go, oh yeah, I remember when that first happened yeah. and how that's kept growing. But also, also the notion of the the long game that we were briefly talking about before. I think thinking about it in that sense. I mean, just you know, within the company, having a look around at the walls and all of the posters and looking at all of that history, but also coming back to your comment before Lee about it, continuous culture, continuous storytelling on this on this space. It's you know, when you think of this country and the the incredibly ancient long game in this country, it's this you know one year. What does, what does one year mean in all of that? Yeah, right. something that's been really lovely this year, which came out of COVID, was Play Club and the reading series of plays on Zoom that we've been doing through the year. And it was lovely hearing Rachel Mazza talk about this This 250 years as a blip in time. It's a blip mm-hmm. in time insofar as yeah. that question of the, this, this, the world's oldest continuous culture. And you just go, in our little blip, what are we doing? How, mm-hmm. how are we building? What are we building? And that was just a really lovely thing from her, for her to like look at it go, blip. And I'm like, so in this little blip within the blip, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, yeah. are you, what are you looking forward to most? Mm. Which is your favourite story? Come on, lay it on the line. I want to know. Oh, I have lots of favourites this this Choose one. Yeah, Top favourite. I, I have to say, I have a, a very strong soft spot for Don't Ask What the Bird Looked Like. Hannah 
will be making her, you know, main stage playwriting debut. She's such a hardworking young writer who just just works so hard for every opportunity and just keeps writing and keeps, you know, improving her skill and wanting to learn from everyone. And this play came to us, well, she brought it to Queensland Theatre in 2017 for the Queensland Premiers Award cycle that started in 2018. But really, she, she sent that. She, she sat there and put it together and went... I guess I'll send it into this competition back in 2017. So it's, you know, it's been in her heart and mind for a really long time. And it's such a beautiful, tender story. So I'm just really excited that she'll have that moment in the sun and hope she's enjoying all the attention she's getting from all the <laughs> ads around the city. Because yeah. uh, players don't usually get their face on the poster. <laughs> no, well, that's, so, that's yeah. a lovely thing I would say out of the out of the COVID times where normally we would have the plays cast a long time in mm. advance mm. and we'd be selling the idea of that actor in this play. We couldn't do this this year. And then we learned that last year and that actors can't sign on to contracts for next year because they're trying to like stay available for the amazing film and TV opportunities that are available at the moment to them. And we've just gone, you know what, that's okay. I'm not going to try and pin you down for the middle of next year. Let's talk. I'm really interested in you, but let's talk closer to the time and you can see what that financial decision is for you to make because theatre doesn't pay as much as film and TV. Mm. And acknowledging that, actors need to make some money after this last complicated time. Absolutely. So... I look at that, what, what it allowed us to do is say to the playwrights, I'd like to put your face on the, on the brochure. Now, to be fair, Hannah has been an actor, is an actor, so she's okay with that. Yes. Not every playwright would be, but I love being able to foreground the playwrights and having Wesley Enoch and Hannah mm. both fronting their mm. plays is really lovely. Yes, we will cast actors. Yes, we'll replace those playwrights' faces with actor faces. But actually seeing, but I think for Hannah, seeing her face on the side of a bus going past might be a bit disconcerting, <laughs> really. But it, it still makes it a tangible moment of achievement. Yeah. You know, a playwright's journey is so hidden in a way and they get that moment where they're told, yep, we're going to do your play. But that's quite often. And the only moment that's public about that is the season launch. And then they might have opening night, but they're still sharing that with their cast and the director and all those sorts of things. So it's a, and it can be a lonely job. So I, I love that, you know, there's this little moment in time before it's cast that the attention is on her and, and the anticipation of the words she's and chosen. You know, I love that our subscribers mm. will know her face. Yeah. And that when it comes to her season, they'll be able to walk up to her with confidence in the middle of the season and go, Han- mm. you're Hannah Belansky. Yeah. And I kind of go, that's lovely. Yeah. I really like that. Such too. a brilliant end to that journey too. You've been such a staunch advocate for this work. The ages showing. I feel like you've been this cheerleader. And I kind of feel like it's so lovely, you know, to leave the, Q, uh, the Queensland Premier's Drama Award and then to kind of actually... To, to, to then find its own premiere season outside of that award. It's just, it's just such a lovely kind of, um, I don't know, end of that journey in, in some weird way. Yeah. To kind of go, plays, well, plays, not, plays yeah. are found and they're refound. Well, and they're- the award is really just about finding plays. And yes, there's one that wins and so yeah. it gets production, but it's just a chance to actually hear what people are writing and it might not be ready to win the yeah. award. It doesn't mean it's not going to get ready as a story. Yeah. yeah. And Bird, which we have shorthands, we have shorthand <laughs> ways of referring to the plays because we're moving really fast and sometimes the titles are long and you can't write it every time in all your emails so that the plays become known as like one word things dirt Bird. <laughs> bird. Bird, bird. Almighty, which Almighty. is yours. Yes. You're looking forward to that one. I'm so looking forward to that one. It's, um, you know, you were saying which one's your favourite. I, I, I was going, hmm. I, I'm a person of extremes. I'm looking forward to like the wolf. Wolf. Yes. Um, so I'm also <laughs> looking forward to First Casualty and Othello, but also the small ones. I'm looking forward to Bird and the Almighty sometimes, which are, are smaller, but they're still big in their, you know, in their ambition and their, um, and their theme and scale. So I kind of, I'm ready for the big blockbuster and I'm also ready for the, for the smaller kind of chamber work. So they're sort of big heart plays. Little yeah. play, the little plays usually punch through. You know, it's that question of how does a play make it to the programming table? Yeah. They've got to punch through with something. They've got to do something better than every other play yeah. to earn its place. And Bird and Almighty both have such huge heart. Yeah. Huge heart that they actually, yeah. that's what makes them float to a surface, if you like, you know, yeah. or rise up. And that, that big heart that's in Almighty. I was just going to say, they both have such urgent longing, like aching yeah, in aching, for resolve, yeah, you know, yeah. like they're such they're a, aching into being, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, which is just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you, Drew, when you read a play, it's about like punching through. It could be a play in the season or in, in next year's season, but when have you been hooked in a work? Like when do you know? When do your bones go still and you know that this one is... 
that this has to be seen by people. You know, not not, not just a flat piece of literature anymore, but actually ha- it needs the breath and life of a company. <laughs> I have my answer. Yeah. Um, and it's a really personal response, obviously, <laughs> I guess, to any piece of art. But when I find myself wanting to say the lines out loud, you know, to myself, where I start to feel like I want to hear them, like not just read them in my head silently, but actually start saying them out aloud and feel the um, the pace of it, then I know I'm, I'm reading something that wants to be alive. It's because, working on you. Yeah, it's it? working on me. Like I want to turn, I want to make it alive and say that? it out aloud. Do you say it aloud? Well, if I'm alone in the office, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about you, right? Oh, for me, it's the it's the gut feel. You know, it's that it's that complete visceral engagement where the hairs on the back of your neck stand up or where you riotously laughing at the, you know at this at, at a moment it's 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 that kind of whole of body mm. experience with mm. the work that I think and it yeah. and there's no rule to how or when it happens that's the mystery mm. you know you always hope that you're going to be reading something good that's I love the pile of plays where I kind of go okay I pick up one and I go okay where am I you want every play that you read to do that to you and it's strange when it doesn't because mm. that's your expectation always mm. But it's interesting because sometimes it happens, you know, straight from the beginning. There was one mysterious one where I would say, you know, that people who read a lot will say, oh, I've got this rule, like if by page 20, and I go, yes, mm. and I, I would have gone by that until I came up against Brandon Jacobs Jenkins oh. with Gloria. Yeah. That was an offer to me when I was a director a couple of years ago. Well, longer than that now. And I'm reading along and I'm like, well, it's a sort of an average American sitcom-y kind of play. Yeah. Okay, look, I can make it work, but it's not very funny and I'm not really brilliant at making things funny when they're not. So I was like, oh, it's sort of averagely funny, but oh, and I don't really like any of these people. And then on page 29, I think, <laughs> Gloria comes through with a gun and kills everyone and blows yeah. her head off and I'm like, I'm totally doing this play. <laughs> totally doing this play. Because I wanted to kill them, essentially. Yeah, right. I could... And on some, I didn't. I wasn't that violent, but I kind of went, "Oh my god, yeah, I've got no idea where this is going now, and what's going to happen." Turn the page. Where are we going next? Mm. And the writer had me. Uh, mm. So sometimes it happens in ways that are completely contrary to all of the little rules that you have in your head about what, how it should work. Yeah. And that's what I love is is when a playwright does something to you that you couldn't have anticipated, because they invent things. But often it's really early. It's the voices and you kind of go, they just come up off the page. Yeah. And and you don't have to work at all. Yes. You'd have, you don't have to will it into existence. Yes. It's just there and you go, oh, right, okay. Mm. It doesn't always happen on the first read either, does it? You know, sometimes it takes, you know, there's got to be a kernel of something, hasn't there, to start yeah. with. But It's always for me in the oh, first read. Really? Because that's like being yeah. an audience member for me. Yeah, right. I remember before it was yeah. officially programmed to the 2022 season, there was an internal company reading of Viet Gone, where just whoever was in the office who wanted to read it gathered in the boardroom. We just doled out parts between people with no art involved, just you'll take this role, you'll take this role. And even in that reading, as kind of clunky as it was, because, you know, it wasn't a group of actors, you know, people in the office, but even from that reading, you could tell there was something that everyone who was reading it just loved how fun it was, how how much fun they got to have reading the line. And coming out of that, yes, I, I was I was hooked. I was like, oh yeah, but this also one's, this one's like, a doozy. <laughs> that plays like it, it's sort of amazing because you read if the stage directions are funny. Yeah, that's right. Know? And no one's ever going to read those stage directions, which is a crying shame. Go buy the play and read the stage directions. Yeah, but it's like something that's like there's a ninja fight. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Well, then, then, then there is a, there's a there's a motorbike chase, and you go what? Yeah. And so your theatrical head goes, this is so exciting. Like yeah. how do you, that, that's that's such like that's like food for a director. So well, that's I know. so that one that one I had to read a couple of times and, and the first time I, you know, I, I, I had a chuckle at all of those bits and, and loved all of those things which is, you know, why I needed to go back again but getting into the rhythm and the, the you know, I sort of, I, I clicked with the, the, the tragedy Mm. But the second time, the comedy, I, I, I was just laughing myself yeah. stupid the second time. Yeah, I was yeah. You know, because I mean, I'd got myself into that, the rhythm of it on a page. You see, and that was, that was really, I had a thing in my head where I kind of went, I'm, a, I'm up to date with what African-American writers are writing in America at the moment. And there's a, there's a lot that belongs just in America. I love the plays, but they're not for here. Like the, the politics wouldn't make sense to an Australian audience, so why do them? You could actually do cultural damage by doing doing them here. Maybe import the production, I don't know. Do you know, it, that's a big thing in my head. So, and I kind of went, 
I don't know what's happening with Asian American writers at the moment. So I kind of did a bit of a survey just online, Googling around, saw a few titles of things where I went, oh, that seems interesting, bought the plays, they came in, they come in as a pile, I've got some time, okay, have a read, fell off my chair laughing. And I kind of went, what does an American play look like and how is that changing? And I, I was looking for something that would bend our expectations beyond the, you know, the big Americans, the Arthur Millers, the Sam Shepherds, whatever. We're like, what's America writing? And I read that and I went, oh, that looks and sounds nothing like an American play that I know. But it fit into that question of diaspora plays, mm. how the world moved in the 20th century mm. and their kids are writing about it. <laughs> And we've got a lot of those stories in Australia. And I kind of loved that there was a familiarity of type of story, Mm. but was told on the other side of the planet. Mm. And I love what I thought might be fun. What I thought might bring together an Australian audience is that we all get to laugh at the Americans in it. Mm. That we're actually on the side of the Vietnamese evacuees and laughing at the Americans. I was going to say, is this why it didn't feel like an American play? Because it doesn't take its Americanness too seriously yeah. at all. It's yeah. really irreverent. And, and I kind of go, how do we get a more complex understanding of what America is as opposed to what Hollywood has told yes. us it is? Yes. And I kind of went, right at that point, I kind of went, oh, there's a play here that might be interesting and fun to play. And honestly, I was looking for something for not fun because she's so good. Yeah. And, you know, that you do that as, a, as an artistic director. You kind of look at the talent that sits in the city and you kind of go, what's a story that that person could lead? Mm. And what's something which I think mm. would be fun for her? Mm. Um, and it wasn't even which role. It was like, not, <laughs> do you like this play? What do you reckon about it? And even if she didn't want to play it, did she want to like, I don't know, be an assistant director on it? I don't know. Is mm. this a play that you would like to see in, in the Brisbane community? Mm. And I kind of thought that's where that, and then I was like, okay, how do I get, <laughs> what's, what are people going to think about this? And it's kind of, offering a play around to read is kind of a little bit like running nude through the office. <laughs> you know, if I'm saying have a read of this, it's like, well, not really like running nude, that would be inappropriate. And we don't do that at Crimson <laughs> Theatre. But, but that thing of like, I really like this, am I crazy? is what the other first read is, Mm. you know. And if people come back and go, yeah, no, that's awful, then I either kind of go, okay, I've got to convince you. Mm. Mm. Or if you go, no, 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 I kind of go, oh, we could be onto something. Mm. That thing, it's like a little bit of a virus to play. People have got to catch the love of it. Yeah. 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 I I love it when a play, when I kind of hear a simple summary of it or get a gist of kind of the world that the play's entering into. I love it when... I have an expectation of that and go, oh, it's a play about a war Mm -hmm." or soldiers or whatever. And I go, well, that's not something I've in the past been interested in. But I love it when my expectations are completely thrown away and um, I find so much more. That's that's what I thought about First Casualty, the the kind of how it came to the stage story aside. I loved that it it shouldn't be the kind of story I, I personally would be intrigued by, but I loved that the playwright from the first page showed me why I was wrong about myself. Like yeah. I really was humbled and confronted and I love that. I love being reminded why, when and why I'm wrong about yeah. things. Oh. And I love it when, when art and plays do that to me because you walk around with your experience of the world and your assumptions and it's so, I find it really refreshing and exciting when someone or something proves me wrong. Yeah. yeah. I had exactly the same experience yeah. with First Casualty when I first read it. That thing of I shouldn't like this. I should I think like after that big spate of movies. You know how there was like Saving Private Ryan and Thin Red. Like there was a whole bunch of movies of about American war. American movies, movies yeah. about war. But it seemed like a, a batch of them at once. And I remember getting incredibly sick of it and going, you know what? That's it. I'm out. I don't want to hear another damn story about hmm. a conflict that America is involved with. Like I'm done. I think you know. I see. I had this conspiracy yeah, theory. Right. Like they're just doing it to recruit people. They just want yeah, more young right. people in the army. So I was out until first casualty that's brought me back. That, in. It's, it's an yeah. interesting playwrights change your mind about yeah. things. Yeah, that play is such a play of specificity of language. Like it knows yes. exactly what it's doing, and Christopher's writing is so stunning. There's a real big, I think, poetic thread through the whole thing, but there's such the minutia of like 
the soldiers talking and their conversation and their their, their yeah. larrikinism, for it, want of a better word. It, but like it, it feels it's, it's so richly anymore, authentic. It? It's so that's authentic. the word it would have it would have been yeah. called before in the past. But, but it's the camaraderie, or I don't know what like, yeah, word yeah. is. And I'm sure if Christopher was here, he would just tell me immediately because he, he can do that and he has done that to me. He can tell <laughs> but, but there's something about that play that is actually I find really really quite affecting and devastating because it's. So it feel it feels very very authentic in a way that I haven't read a play like that in a long time, which is why I had the bones go quiet moment when yeah. I read that one. There's that specific military language jargon, like sub language, that that again had me wanting to say it out aloud because I'm like, oh, this is like a cool. Like, how do I go, Delta Bravo? Duh, duh, duh. Yeah. Like you hear it in the movies, but when you get a chance to put it in your own mouth, you're like, oh, that's really mm. quite exciting and tastes interesting. Yeah. yeah. It also yeah. has one of my favourite characters in it of all time. Which, it, which is the um, translator. Oh, yes, Ali. Ali, the translator. That is just one of the most yes. beautiful characters I think I've read in yeah. a long time. And look, isn't it fascinating when that first came into the Queensland Premier's Drama Award many years ago now, no one was thinking about our role in Afghanistan. It was, mm. uh, you know, military secrecy was actually keeping it from the Australian public. And had it gone on then, Christopher would have had to leave the army for it to exist as a play. Uh-huh. And now Army is evolving and changing in their relationship to the Australian public and now he can continue his career as a soldier. And it's it's amazing to think about a play and the time, mm-hmm. its right time. Now that question about the translators and our responsibility to them as a nation, it's a public conversation. Mm-hmm. But he was writing that role before we even were thinking about that. Yeah, And I kind of go, that the journey of that character to the stage and what it will mean for Australians having that embodied next year while we're still, yeah. where we're just starting to think about what are the consequences of our actions there. That play is so large. It's quite huge to read on the page. I'm interested, Lee, why it's made its way into the Bill Brown Theatre. Did you choose that space? Like, Where did that decision come from? It's a big, from? Con- big yeah. conversation because it's such a huge play to jam into that little yeah. space. And the vistas and the visions for it are so big. And the landscape of Afghanistan is so big to try and represent. Look, I think I understand what it would be on the Playhouse mm. stage at QPAC. And that seems like the obvious choice for the creation of a big world. Mm. But I don't want it to be a spectacle play. I don't want to be safe in the seat looking at a proscenium. And sometimes that's the danger of a proscenium space. It distances us. We look at a picture as opposed to feel the humans. It's not that it's impossible to feel the humans on that space. But it's built for a particular type of theatre. And I think Christopher as a playwright is trying to pull us into the experience of this handful of soldiers on a remote base in the Uruzgan province. And I kind of, we want to get really close to the soldiers in this because he's asking us to understand the pressures that we have put on soldiers, our soldiers on the other side of the planet and how far away we are from understanding that. It's not a, an anti-war play, but neither is it celebrating mm. the spectacle of war, which I think sometimes is the danger in the American war telling. Yeah. yeah. I think it wants us to understand these humans sitting in that situation and what they were living. So I think he wants the audience to immerse in it, which is something that's possible in the Bill Brown space. He's also making the play very specifically for his veteran friends Mm. and he wants to honour them and he wants them to come and see the play, as hard as that might be for them. Mm. But I think he wants their families to see it And knowing that, we're hoping for a large veteran audience or people with families involved in the armed forces. He wants there to be a space where they can have a drink afterwards, have a a beer, have a cup of coffee afterwards and sit and talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, how, you know, that it's a fiction. So, and I think he wants the fiction to actually help people have conversations. So it's not a documentary and it's not a rip from the headlines. It's not a speculative work. It's really about reflecting his 
experience and their experience there. And he wants them to be able to sit in a safe place and have a conversation for a couple of hours afterwards. And he looked at the the beautiful courtyard of the Bill Brown Theatre, the tree and the, you know, the beautiful new forest space and said, you know what, I reckon my mates would be happy sitting here, happier than they would be maybe in the bigger space over at QPAC. So it's about the audience experience of this, Mm. both in the play and after the play. And that's why the Bill Brown. I'm hoping that we make it well enough that theatres everywhere will want it. But in its first iteration, for me, uh, honouring the experience that the playwright is hoping to create for the audience is why the Bill Brown. So it's enormous and it's sort of ridiculous putting in there. But it does mean we can run it for longer because one of the bonuses of the Bill Brown spaces is a company, it's not quite as expensive for us to put it on. The smaller scale doesn't cost quite as much, which means it can go for longer. Yes. So it's it's a strategy around letting the stories sit in the city for longer next year. Yeah, I'm excited by it in that space because it's about the specificity and the minutia of just of, of having to live like that and how complicated that is. And I feel like the closer we can Get. be to those actors mm. and their sweat and the, yeah. the smells and the kind of ridiculous... More visceral. Yeah, I, mm. I think that's that's mm. what's exciting about it. I, that's why I'm, I'm pleased it's actually in the Bill Brown. Yeah, me too. Mm, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but by the same token, I can't wait to get over to QPAC for... The Sunshine Club, mm. which is something that was on that space 20 years ago and is yeah. ready to, like, rip again. I know. Yeah. yeah. 1999. 1999. It's, it's, um, hard to believe, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were all worried about Y2K blowing up the world. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. Back again. Did, yeah. You, did anyone here see the original production? No, I I did. Nope. I missed it, which is why I'm really grateful for this opportunity to jump on the bandwagon. But, but it's, oh. it's one of these works that it, it seems to be in our local cultural memory. Like mm. everyone talks about this work. It's got it's got such fondness and warmth it's a thing around of legend. it. So yes. you, you kind of feel like you already, you, even though I haven't seen it, I feel like I have seen it or been part of it in some way because it's talked about so much. I'm really pumped to see it actually. Mm. To see where's these rewrites. Yes, he has looked at it. He said, like, yeah, well, I could do that better now. I'm like, no, and my job is actually (laughs) in a funny way to protect the play from him. Protect it and sort of say, no, don't update it. No, 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 no. To defend his 28-year-old talent from his older cynical self that says (laughs) I can do that better, and maybe not. But there was something that he tapped into when he was 28 that was both incredibly raw and exposing but also very hopeful. And I think that's something that's quite needs to be protected from his snickle older self. Mm. And in general, I think, like I think with the state of the world as it is, like I think it's unfair for the a, a generation to kind of take away hope with their cynicism from mm. a young generation making their way. It's like if, if anyone needs all the hope and optimism we can give them, yes. it, it needs to be young people now. It needs yeah. to be that next generation watching something huge like that that's full of hope from a past and going, yeah. well, if, you know. He could have hope then. Yeah. Given how far we've travelled in the last 20 years, then actually I need to be writing into the hope narrative now mm. for the next 20 years. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The cover the cover page of, of read, you know, reading yeah. that, that play once we tracked it down, the cover page and the list, the cast list yes. and the list of creatives and looking at where those people are now is just so exciting. Both but the joy and I the sadness it, of that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, look, and, and okay, oh, this is totally inappropriate, which is why I'm terrible artistic director. But how exciting was it last week when Sam French said, Roxanne's in, because she was in the original. Yeah. And oh, we're going to yeah. announce this weeks, months from now. There'll be the official <laughs> announcement. But, you know, yeah. the fact that she was in the original show playing old, mm-hmm. and now she is older, and she's finally old enough to play the role. But back then, <laughs> there wasn't someone who could stand up on stage mm-hmm. and play that role. And she stepped up into that age group for the sake of getting it on stage. But now she can return and, and actually really be that person that she's been for so many, so many artists. And you go, that that's really exciting. So yeah, it's just see, another lovely cycle of, yeah. of what the work means and how an artist can cycle back to it. Wesley and yeah. Roxanne. And, yeah. yeah. Then she was playing an artie. Now she is an artie. And yeah. you're going to yeah. go, you know, that's, that's really kind of gorgeous. And those layers of stories, both within the the company, but also within the state and the country, because of course yeah. that show travelled down to down south to Sydney and had a beautiful Sydney season in in year two thousand. And I hope that it travels again. Mm. I hope that from here, a whole new batch of fresh talent 
under the, mm. you know, the now very experienced gaze of, of Wesley Enoch. Now he's an icon that that show will travel again around the country and bring a lot of joy mm. around the country. Look, I've read it, but I haven't seen it. And so I don't know the music so well. But as people are remembering the music of it, that's quite gorgeous. And John Rogers's jazz sensibility, mm. pulling together a group of musicians that are happy to play in that let's invent it space again. Mm. The excitement of that, I think, is, is something, you know, again, there's a reason you do a revival in the year. Mm. It's to actually go, I think this play might be one of our classics. This work mm. is something that we should be keeping across time. It's a speculative act. Mm-hmm. People could look at it and go, well, I just don't think that's the case. No. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, we don't do it a lot, do we? Like well, we? We don't bring back something back all that often. The, the tradition is we revive the Plays great… from other countries. Other countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, but that thing of we're at the very beginning of establishing our own canon. And the canon can only be the works that survive across time, right? Mm. But we only know if we do them again. Yeah. And uh, so that's exciting for me is to kind of go, no, I think Sunshine Club is one of our great works. Mm-hmm. But the audience decides that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of theatre memory that brings it back. You know, a whole group of theatre people, theatre nerds will mm. go, oh, yeah, maybe. Mm. But then the audience will decide if this is one that, if it does well, then mm. 20 years from now again, an artistic director will go, oh, it should be a revival t- time to mm. revive Sunshine Club. Should everybody go, oh, yeah, of course, that'd be yeah. good next year. Yeah. You know, but if we don't do it now, will they know about it 40 years from now? Yeah. You know, so we're at the beginning of that. I mean, you have to remember the professional Australian theatre where artists stayed in Australia. If you wanted to be a, a theatre artist, you used to have to leave the country. Yeah. And really the big works are the ones toured in from overseas. There was fine amateur theatre in Australia. There always has been. But it really, it was only about 50 years ago that we pulled out into the professional space where people should be paid to do this. This should be a full-time job and we should be making works in our own languages, in our own voices. So it's only about 50 years deep, professionally speaking. A blip. A blip. A A little blip blip. in the scheme of world theatre. Absolutely. You look at the Comédie Française, which has been going for 350 years worth of traditions. We don't have a lot of traditions in Australian theatre because we're only getting to the point where we have our theatre elders Mm. who've had a full Australian life in in the theatre. John Bell is not that old in the scheme of, and he's one of our few that's had a full creative life in this country. You know, Neil Armfield, Rachel Mazza, you know, full lives in living memory is the history of Australian theatre. So Sunshine Club is one of our greats, I reckon. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) Speaking of classics and Mm. the Australian accent, what about Virginia Woolf? Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> In an Australian accent. In an Australian accent. Because Margaret Harvey, as a director, says, I can only see this play. Yeah, it's a great American play, but I can only see this through the lens of Australia. Mm-hmm. And as a Torres Strait Islander woman, I see this play as a vehicle to talk about the dysfunctional marriage that is white Australia with its mm-hmm. First Nations people. It's a dysfunctional marriage. And Mm. that's such a beautiful and original thought that can only be (laughs) thought by a First Nations artist. And you go, okay, you take me on that journey. And I mean, she had me at Jimmy Barney. (laughs) 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 But I kind of go, yeah, I want to see that. And what you do with it as an artist and the limb that you're going out on and tackling one of the great American works and making it an Australian narrative. That belief that the transformation into another culture is actually possible. And it's a great gamble to be making with that play. Mm. That's the beautiful thing about a classic, isn't it? It can transform and survive the wants of an artist in a particular time. So yeah, I know it will. And hearing that great play in an Australian voice, can't wait. And it was really interesting. Theoretically, I should have seen that play by now because it was going to go on the Adelaide stage earlier. But Jimmy Barney sadly suffered a loss in the family, which meant that the play was put on hold. So it'll be going on before it goes on here, but uh, it'll be very fresh. But it was an interesting conversation with Mitchell. Sometimes you lose an actor from a cast and the play still goes on. You know, the fine tradition of the show must go on. He said... Jimmy's performance is so extraordinary. We don't want to do it without Jimmy. Oh, wow. So they've That's delayed so it. amazing. 
But it's also, again, COVID wins. We know how to delay a play now. The audience knows how to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And companies know how to do that. Yeah. So that's actually kind of extraordinary that he kind of felt a confidence born of COVID to reschedule the damn thing mm. and do it when it's a time that's right for the lead actor in there. And you go, yeah, absolutely we can do that. Oh, so, you know, beautiful. we've learned a lot in these last two years. What's the pointy end of that production? He's like, I don't want to do it with someone else. I want audiences to see that performance. And you go, yeah. <laughs> I love that play. I love that play. It's such a good hard play. Oh, uh, no, the, it's true. The last 10 pages of that play are some of the most beautiful, like, it's just pitch perfect playwriting. It's just, yep. uh, it just, it rips me to pieces. And you know, what, it's I, a funny thing, isn't it? The difference between doing a classic as yeah. opposed to a new work, doing a classic is like, for an audience and for a director, definitely, it's like driving around in a big old Rolls Royce. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Can't say built. I know what it's like to drive a Rolls Royce. No, no, I know. I've only been in one like, when it, like twice in my life, but the feeling is like this thing is a car and it is driving. I mean, most like a new a new work is like riding a billy cart down a hill. <laughs> you know, if you've got two wheels on and the spark's coming off, you cross the finish line, but you're still on two wheels, yeah. you win, right? Yeah. Yeah. But but a classic is like this beautifully built vehicle where every yeah. line. Like you borrowed off someone. Works. Yeah, and you just yeah. go, oh, we are so lucky to be riding in this Rolls Royce. Yeah. And respect for like beautiful engineering, mm. you know? Mm. And they're both beautiful experiences for totally oh, yeah. different reasons. Totally Correct. different reasons. Yeah. Correct. And you know, but a new work, seriously, if you come out, <laughs> you know, having not lost flesh, you're lucky. Yeah. You know, you've got scrapes and dings, but you kind of go, if if it holds together as a vehicle for transportation. You celebrate, yeah. You know, different experiences, and for directors, for creatives, for the actors, for audience, very different lived experiences. Yeah, new plays cost you a lot of flesh. Yeah, and, um, and it means a different thing to be an audience or creative crossing the finish line of opening night in the billy cart versus crossing the finish line, you know, in the Rolls Royce. Well, you have different. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have. You yeah. want to get the Rolls Royce across the line without having dented it too badly. Yeah. Because Dad will be really mad. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly it's right. It's the feeling, you know, like. It's a good metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like my love of my life who's down south at the moment and I was doing Return to the Dirt, a new play. He just sends me a thing saying, how many wheels on the billy cart? <laughs> and I'm like, actually, this is a good one. There are three wheels on the billy cart. Oh, three wheels on this one. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, right. That's a good play then. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I know, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you kind of go, once that's done, another company should do that play. Mm -hmm. They don't have to take hours. It's not built to tour. It's got a revolve, warning. But <laughs> which means for everybody listening, it can't get into a theater quickly. So it costs more money to take a show with a revolve in time. But I reckon artistic directors around the country should be looking at that play and going, every state has a Toowoomba to its main city. Yeah. It's another you know, one with great jokes in the stage directions. Like like yeah. Viet Gone, there's, you get a special bonus extra if you're reading the play yeah. on the page. Look, I think that's been a strategy that some very clever playwrights yeah. have realised, that if you have a good read of a play, it can get under your skin in other ways. Mm -hmm. So those stage direction plays, it's like... Jacob Jenkins does the same yeah. in his writing. Yeah. Comments oh, to you, knowing that no one except artistic directors and programming people will read it. But if you give them a good read, mm -hmm. you get them on side. Mm -hmm. And I find that um, the older dudes, the Wing Paneros, the... Oscar Wilde's, Noel Coward, they all do that in their stage directions. And yeah, I think it's coming back. Yeah. 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 So that that's fun. So we've spoken about the roller and the billy cart, but we we haven't spoken about the citron yet. We haven't gone to the citron. What? Which one is the citron? Oh, we, we haven't spoken oh, about Bernhard Hamlet. Oh, the oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> Oh my God, French <laughs> French engineering, slightly unreliable at times, but but worth, you know, very stylish, very That's stylish. Weird. Is that the quintessential French car? I thought it was the Peugeot. I know nothing oh, about I don't. cars. <laughs> <laughs> like, very stylish, you know, and uh, oh, look, oh, Bernhard Hamlet. Again, interestingly, an American play that does not look like an American play. Mm. Yeah, you're right. That's so astute. That, that, that's, that's, you know, I kind of go, I'm, I'm really loving it. 
Teresa Rebeck is a great American playwright who you wouldn't necessarily have heard of because she's she's part of the layer of American playwriting that doesn't necessarily head to Broadway. Often we only hear about American plays because they are a success on Broadway or the West End, right? Mm. But she is a very successful American playwright that's been writing in the, the off-Broadway and regional space all her life. And She's one of the generation of female playwrights. So were she starting her career now, she would be a, a comet blazing yeah. through the firmament. Mm-hmm. She's an older female American playwright uh, who's had a substantial career that will be, I wonder, for that generation of women around the world, were they starting now, they would be the enfant terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> of their time because their capacity is extraordinary. So she has written this play about Sarah Bernhardt playing Hamlet, which she did. And Sarah Bernhardt talked about herself as the greatest actor on the planet. She was a woman of great ambition and capacity in the late 19th century. And it's crazy that we don't know more about her and that we don't celebrate her more because she was a radical in her time, what she achieved. And um, she built her own theatre. She was that successful. She built her own theatre. She played, I love this story, she played Juliet when she was 60 with one leg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She was that successful. And people talked about her performance being transcendent. And you kind of go, that's amazing, the power of great actors to mm-hmm. transport people. And the power of proscenium acting, everything is possible behind a proscenium. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how old you are behind the proscenium. Good lights, <laughs> good makeup, and you can be anything. And that tradition of transformation that we're losing. We were asking for so much authenticity from our actors. Yeah, I feel like we are losing it a bit. We I'm are. excited to see stuff yeah. that, that lets an actor, that forces an actor to do that. Yeah, so it's this lovely, in a time when female actors are celebrating being able to play some of the big roles. It's a reminder that there have been female actors who've always pushed yeah. and always been able to do that. And she was one of the early ones. Yeah. And you go, let's celebrate that and kind of go, we're not starting now. The capacity of, of women to lead has been a long time coming. And we should be celebrating some of the people who broke the glass ceilings first, mm. knowing that there was no one for the next 20 years coming behind them. They were really outliers at that point, the exceptional stories. It's, it's lovely to be part of a time where it's not exceptional to be leading it a company. It's not exceptional to be directing. I stand on the shoulders in this company, no doubt, of Robin Nevin. You know, I'm not the first female artistic director here. But what Robin was doing when she was being the first was extraordinary. And I celebrate her. I benefit from the tracks that she laid, that Marion Potts laid before me. And I know that there are a lot of women coming behind me who will have the opportunity to to build the capacity to do it, it'll start to be quite normal. Mm-hmm. Someone said to me, your job in coming into any company on your first day is to start looking for your successor. And the exciting thing is, is that it can be male, it can be female, it can be anyone of any color. Mm-hmm. You know, this company has a great tradition of firsts, first Aboriginal artistic director mm-hmm. of, a, of a major company, Wesley Enoch. And you kind of go, there's that tradition already there. Someone coming after him doesn't have to be the first, so there's less pressure. Mm-hmm. Different kind of pressure, maybe. Mm-hmm. Different time. Sarah Bernhardt for me, I kind of go, yay. Uh, yay her and yay Teresa Rebeck for yes. writing it. When did the play get written? I kind of feel like it was in 2017, 18. Yeah, so relatively Relatively new. Still. And, mm-hmm. and interestingly, I'm pretty sure that there was another major... Uh, and I'm, I know we're letting go of the word major, but another state theatre company who wanted to do the play and they couldn't get the rights to it because they were talking about, you know, the world tour of this play and all this sort of stuff. But COVID interrupted it. So therefore we get to do it. Yeah, you know, us. good for us. Yay yeah. for us. Yay. And, and yay for her that she has an Australian production of the yeah. work. I think it's a lovely thing to do to playwrights around the world because they kind of go, you know, you always, a playwright will go, oh, I write a play for the community that I'm in, speaking to people I know. Oh, if it goes to another city in my country, that's great. Oh my gosh, it's going to another country. Oh my God, it's gone all the way to Australia. And you can just hear that American accent going, Australia, someone in Australia wants to do this. And I kind of love that. And I've heard that firsthand. Merlin Tong, who did our Antigone, 
there's a UK production of that. And just to see her excitement, yeah. complete joy yeah. at going, oh, my gosh. Michelle Lee, this who thing wrote I wrote Rice. in Brisbane's over yeah. the other side of the world. It's a a Queensland Premier's Drama Award-winning yeah. play, Rice, is having a London production. Susie Miller's play, Prima Facie, is, is making its West End. Uh, she's making her West End debut yeah. next year. And I love year. that these artists... They're still living and working in Australia and their work is yeah. travelling, that we're not having this talent suck where they're all leaving Australia mm-hmm. to have their play put on somewhere no. else. They can stay here and do it. Well, and the play travels. Coffee shops. The play yeah. travels. Yeah. Yeah. The play travels. Yeah. Plays can travel. Yeah. And about I think time. that's Yeah. And it's again, it's not about the Australian production touring. That's yeah. one way of it doing it, but sometimes that can hold a play back. Mm. No, it's not the play that Prima Facie isn't the production that you saw here on the Queensland Theatre stage. It's its own production with a British playwright because actually it needs to implicate the British audience. They need to realise how complicit they've been in their own failure to address sexual harassment in the workplace. That's their own story and it needs to be in their voice. And yes, an Australian playwright can have a hit on the West End Mm. and the British should feel like it's their play. Yeah. That's okay. We know the story. We know the history. Merlin's play will speak. Merlin's Antigone will speak to a British I th- audience. I think also too. What's exciting about these plays and these makers having their international debut after being programmed here and singing mm-hmm. on this stage is the world feels a lot smaller. But also, like, I'm probably biased, but I, I think we create world class theatre here, and I think sometimes we're a bit down on ourselves. But when you travel and when to you be fair, learn, we haven't always. Well, we had we to learn, how, like you know, again that yeah. thing of a st- truly Australian plays from writers who mm. grew up hearing Australian voices on the stage, that that her tra- tradition is only 50 years deep. And, you, yeah. you know, we have the fabulous David Williamson ending his career. But he's when he started writing, he was an engineer. Yeah. Writing plays in the Australian yeah. voice in these tiny spaces. And they wrote it because they were only hearing plays that were American <laughs> or British. Yeah. That was the sum total yeah. of Australian theatre. So they were writing that yeah. and kind of going, no, we can build this industry. Yeah. And I kind of love that he is retiring. He's retiring? You know, he said he is. Oh. And he's written the memoir. Oh, Farnham said that too. I know. <laughs> imagine David Williams. I can't imagine it. I'm, well, uh, it doesn't mean his plays won't continue to be on the stage, but I love that there are kids that have grown up expecting to see Australian plays. Yes. And yeah, that, that that's if I true. if we programmed a season up here at Queensland Theatre yeah. without an Australian play in it, can you imagine the furor? Yeah. Can you imagine? As it should be. As it should be. But once upon a time, that was not a yeah, thing. Yeah. I and think it's the same as what you were saying about Robin Nevin and Wesley Enoch leading the company. When I was in high school, Robin Nevin was leading Queen's Anne Theatre, and that's when I first became a subscriber. So to me, it wasn't an extraordinary thing. It was just, you know, I'm just a naive teenager going, yeah. oh, a woman runs this, the, the biggest theatre company in yes. the state I live in. Cool. Like it wasn't, but it a was woman just my normal. hadn't led the state yet. Yeah, yeah, But right. now, yeah. you know, as a female artistic director, I sit in a, a state where the Brisbane Festival is mm. curated by a, a female artistic director, run by a, a state with a female governor mm. and a female <laughs> premier, yeah. Yeah. and I've got a female Indigenous arts yeah. minister. It's, it's I seeing, go, seeing that it's seeing that model and going, oh well, if they and, can, then not I can. And I, I, right. I see the young women coming up mm-hmm. who are taking for granted their access to positions of power. They they take that for granted, and you kind of go, that is changing things. It's changing the female mm-hmm. voice in this state mm-hmm. radically. And I kind of go, the job is to then pass it on and kind of get to the point where it does become normal, mm-hmm. unexamined, unexceptional. So it should take unexceptional women. <laughs> no, it's true. Just it should be ordinary women that can aspire to that and expect that representation. You kind of that's kind of great. Unexceptionalism is what we're aiming for. <laughs> how does it feel to have your? This is your second official season here. How well, this, does, how does it, honestly, twenty twenty two feels like my first season. Really? Because yeah. of COVID. Yeah. I came in knowing that I was rolling out Sam Strong's final season. That season collapsed under the COVID. Yeah. restrictions. And then 2021 felt very much about honouring those choices as far yeah. as we could. I know that we couldn't do all of the plays that were in Sam's final season. We had to let go of a couple. 
which hurt, but it feels like 2021 was very much about what can we rescue from 2020 and what can we put in so there is some new opportunity. So it was very much the COVID compromises. Fortunately, we've been lucky enough in 21 to see most of the work mm. that we, we planned go on. We lost a few weeks here and there to lockdowns and to COVID things. We lost one of our actors out of White Pearl, was in an exposure site and so couldn't do two weeks. But one of the actors who leapt in was Merlin and it leapt into the breach. And the other actor who leapt into the breach and subbed in for was Miyuki Lotz, who ended up on stage in her own role in uh, A Return to the Dirt. So it feels like, again, COVID's taken opportunities away from some people, but it's given it yeah. to others. So it feels like we've made it through 2021 by the skin of our teeth. Mm. Unbelievably, we didn't lose a week of Voice Follows Universe. We were yeah. ready to at any point. Okay. But it feels like, well, a big achievement of the year was getting Voice Follows Universe up because it feels like the whole city had been hanging on yeah. for that story yeah. for so long and wanted it so badly. The fact that we got it up means that the whole city can move past that story. We've done that now. Mm. Great. And now the city is free to move on to new stories, right? Yeah. So it feels like we're in a very different place to the rest of the country. Hins down in New South Wales and Victoria, they've got such a backlog of work that wasn't able to come to the stage in 21, 20 or 21. It feels like their 22, 23 is very much going to be a what can they rescue? So their 22, 23 are our 21, if you like. Mm. We've got new stories on the Queensland Theatre stage. We've got new people on the stage. We've got some great new works. But interestingly, not a lot of co-production because the other companies aren't in a state to be able to co-produce with us. They've got the works they have to do. We might pick up some of those works in our 23. Look, it, it does feel like we're looking forward in a very fresh way into 22. Lots to look forward to. I know we're still in COVID. So the challenge will be getting all these works up and then seeing where we go in 23. But yeah, I'm excited by 22. But it does feel like for mm -hmm. my first season mm -hmm. in a funny way. Hopefully I get to keep going and do more than one season. I feel that too, though. Like I, from having worked with you over these last few years, this does feel like your your sensibility and your taste. And yeah, I, I agree. I do feel like it's almost your first full season that's kind of entirely of your curation yeah yeah which is exciting yeah and, and, and painfully overdue in a way to kind of go oh you'll, you'll meet Lee Lewis's vision in this yeah. year which I think is exciting I hope so yeah oh, no pressure <laughs> I, I like it no pressure back in the billy coat yeah if you like I've just expanded like what it is to do a new play and that's what a season feels like is yeah. a bit of a billy cart yeah. each year we ha it's hammered together with all sorts of different bits and things added on and then we, we get to the end of the year and kind of go okay but we're very much the conversation is very much now about what 23 is and yeah. what we're working on and I have to remember to not talk about 23 choices <laughs> know. you know what we try to keep as a surprise yeah. but there are already things falling into place for 23 which I know is very oh. stressful for all the artists out there we go hang on hang on we've got to get through 23 you're talking about 23 but I've got an idea for you and I can be like yeah come in now we're yeah. you know there's a lot of stuff moving forward in the 23 space which is exciting and hopefully Hopefully, all of 22 gets through intact yeah. from artists, but also from audience point of view, because I think there's some stories people are definitely looking forward to. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This was, there was a very loose brief for this podcast that was about programming. What can it be? But I hope it's cracked open a little bit of the conversation, some of the voices, because look, it's not my season. This is the season of plays that we've all thought could be good next year. There is no science to programming. There's just the, the mystery of programming. It's a, it's a complete bluff. We kind of go, these will be amazing. And the audience listens and goes, oh, I think that might be amazing. Maybe you'll come along, but we don't know. We have to make these things. Mm. There's a whole lot of hope in a program. And then you look back and they never turn, the programs, the season never turns out the way you think it will. Mm. We don't know which plays will be the most successful plays mm. in a year. It's which so, ones yeah. catch? They catch fire, don't they? They do, they in do. In ways it's, you wouldn't expect. It's so interesting hearing you talk like this because I think one thing perhaps that people may not know what happens in these conversations is that it's a very generous conversation because you're always going, the audience, the audience is always at the forefront of your mind. Very rarely is it your own personal taste. It's actually kind of going, what does this ride? What does this, what does, what does bird and its beautiful small universality versus first casualty versus wolf? What do all of those offer an audience? An audience. And how to make it a balanced 
palette. Smorgasbord yeah, across yes. the year that you, you, you like can't a degustation. Kind of, yeah, you can't have every every single dish perfect for everyone, and you yeah. you shouldn't. You no. know, like that would be incredibly dull. No, not not every play is for everyone. And I love like galvanizing the audience to actually mm. be able to say, you don't have to like all eight mm. plays. Mm. Theatre yeah. nerds, I want all theatre nerds to love yeah. all eight plays, but I do want a lot of people to go, oh, there's a play in that year for me. Yeah. yeah. And I would love there to be like so many more people who come to just one play a year. If there's one play that you think is absolutely for you in the play in the, in the season, then I think I've I think I've won yeah. because I go if there's one story which you kind of go oh that is absolutely for me then I think that's my job is to reach as many people as I can with one play, mm. and then hopefully theatre people where they get sucked into doing more and more because they love coming to the theatre. Mm. If you like one play in a year, then maybe next year you'll find two that you might like. Mm. Mm. But I even love the conversations with people about plays that we didn't enjoy mm. because yeah. they're just as fascinating a conversation to chat with someone yeah. who, who loved something I didn't like or vice versa. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. still yeah. incredibly stimulating. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And, totally. Which is and why watching love... them all is kind of fun to be able yeah. to go, well, here's how I'd rank my favourites and yeah. kind of hear and someone then, disagree with you. And then to have people go, oh, no, that wasn't my favourite, but I understand why it was there. Mm. I like, yeah. I, I, you know, it didn't speak to me, but I, but it was still a good play. Mm. And yeah. I love that mm. place. Same. Where not everything's from me, but I, I I know and I understand why it's there. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Can I just ask one more question about audience and particularly thinking about the Queensland in Queensland theatre and the fact that, you know, this is a very large state. We're just about to take, we're just about to premiere Othello in Cairns and it will come into our season next year as well. So, you know, just that idea of the trajectory of that. Look, there's been a long conversation and across the whole of Australia, not just in Queensland, but about the region speaking to its capital city and saying, it's not okay that work just comes from you and out into regions, that Mm. we just accept the work from there. And hearing that, all of the companies hear that. And the question is, how do we make work out across the state and let that come into the city space? And so in talking to both government and regional organisations, starting to centre some of our work in the Cairns space, in that far north Queensland sensibility, having work made there that comes down south is a real goal that I think we have at Queensland Theatre over the next 10 years. How do we properly resource works up north to develop, to grow artists up north so that they don't always have to come down here to make work? And yes, it's different financially for us to do that. Work wants to be made in different ways up north? How do we support those artists in making work in different ways? So I suppose Othello is the beginning of a process of, of the company getting used to work starting up north and then coming down here so that the first audiences are northern audiences for works that belong up there. And the adaptation of Othello into a northern Australian story and an understanding of what the war war II was in the Torres Strait in ways that it wasn't necessarily in the rest of Australia. We know about the bombing of Darwin, but we don't necessarily know about our own war history of the bombing of the Torres Strait. And to shine a light on that, that northern sensibility of, of World War II, what that was. And, and bring that language yeah. to south to, to hear Kalalagiga. Yeah, the meaning of the Wagadagam culture with the with the Shakespearean culture and have that happen up north first where it happened and to bring that down south I think is is an exciting path. It started probably really way before my time, but definitely with My Name is Jimmy. I mean, it started on a national level with the great Torres Strait Islander artists that have moved down across the whole country and have made stories across the country. But then My Name is Jimmy was such a a foundational work and I suppose the Othello Project is building on that. I'm looking forward to what the next 10 years brings in sort of investing in that space and facilitating that work coming from north down south so that we can send it out beyond Mm. Queensland, really, to the rest of the country. Being the the state that houses the Torres Strait culture, if Mm. you like, I feel a real responsibility to help facilitate that work out to the rest of the country. So yes, how we do that as a company, how we support that is part of that question about how do we not centre all the work out of Brisbane. Early days, but I'm looking forward to seeing Othello then and then and then celebrating that work in Brisbane Festival next year and the pathway of that work and hoping to replicate that pathway in years to come with other artists. 
And again, it's only possible because there's this brilliant artist, Jimmy Barney, sitting at the heart of it, who's willing to share his family story, his cultural story, invest that in the Shakespearean space. And yeah, I've got a totally appropriate talent crush on Jimmy Barney. So he is one of the great actors in this country. And when one of the great performers says, this is the role I want to play, the company's job is to back that. And has the cultural position as as chief of those people to to safely be able to go, I can put a piece of my culture here safely with the right permissions. Like that's just such a mind-blowing privilege we have. That person chose to be an actor and chose to work with us and we get this incredible insight. And in the time we're at, we're we're acknowledging that First Nations work needs to be led by First Nations Mm. artists. Mm. That's a knowledge that's been built on the back of great First Nations artists working Mm. in works that have not been led by First Nations artists. Mm. And they've gathered the knowledge to say, no, it needs to be led by. Mm. Again, that's something that was only, the kernel of the idea was really only happening 20 years ago. Now it's a practice. Mm. We formed yeah. what best practice is and we're still evolving what best practice is and you kind of go, that needs to be led by our First Nations artists. So you kind of go, it's a complex conversation that we're in, but it's lovely to be conscious of which phase of an evolution of an idea we're in. So many things to look forward to. It's funny to look at the book is, the little brochure is such a summary of so many conversations and you kind of yeah. go, all of that's packed inside there. It's not visible on paper. Because, you know, there's just a couple of paragraphs about each play. But there's so much that's just behind what it takes to get a play into that little book. And it's such a speculative act. We've got no idea what next year will be like and which ones. You look back on it and go, oh, that was my favourite one. But I wouldn't have known that going yes. in. Yeah. You know, because these are just plays at the moment, not productions. Mm. The production will happen. The audience will decide what what works, what doesn't. And we'll look back on it. Who knows? 20 years from now, someone will pick that up off a thing and they'll be scrambling to find a play and they'll flip through and they'll go, oh, almighty, don't ask what the bird looked like. Does anyone have a copy of that? (laughs) And a blip, blip, that blip, and they might pick it up and go, oh, beautiful. Great, a three-hander, we can afford that. (laughs) Uh, And this was from that, oh, Hannah Belansky. Yes, this is Hannah Belansky's first play. Hopefully Hannah's written 20 plays. Yes. And this was her first play. Maybe it would be a great thing to bring back her first play and have the story of how she started at Queensland yeah. Theatre. Gorgeous. Before her work debuted on in the West End. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows where it'll go? Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a good and speculative place to end the conversation, Rod, Shari, Dan, thank you thank for you. carving out this bit of time. Who knows? And they'll be like, oh, my God, Shari Irwin. There's some tape of her talking. <laughs> tape, Sweet. listen to me. <laughs> tape. Okay, there used to be this thing called tape. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for joining us on a, one of our unwieldy conversations that pulls back the curtain, if you like, on some of the conversations that we get to have as theatre makers in this time. Thank you for joining us in the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to Quality Time. Please rate and review it and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter at QLD Theatre. You can visit our website, queenslandtheatre.com.au to sign up to our e-news and learn more about the stories we'll be sharing next. We can't wait to see you at the theatre again soon. Bye! That was great! Okay. I can get to it. 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 I